0: and welcome to the age stage a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians it is made possible by half care Australasia and Australian unity i'm Brendan Toffy here in the Bendigo bank studio this Thursday morning, hoping that uh, you're doing okay in this cooler weather at the moment. Well, this week on the Age Stage, we monitor the introduction of Victoria's euthanasia laws with our medical reporter, Damien Flinley, and Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia also dropped by for a little bit of a chat, and we also meet our new Age Stage reporter and producer, Cheryl Brody. That's something to look forward to a little bit later on in the program this Thursday morning. But first... Time to introduce our medical reporter, Damien Flanley. Damien, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Been a lot of developments in the last couple of weeks, and I was very keen to get you, Damien, namely the introduction um, last week of the assisted dying legislation here in Victoria, which puts us at the forefront. Palliative care, I guess, is probably one of the areas where this legislation is designed to go, but I would suggest that for some of us older Australians, as we enter this sort of... Third age, as you will, Mm. um, it might be a discussion and an option that we might have to start intellectualizing about
1: as we get a little bit older. What are your thoughts? Look, I think uh, the government's been very proactive in engaging the community in positive discussion following on, you know, the 20 plus years of uh, Philip Nischke up in Darwin talking about how we can provide assisted dying. Uh, But I guess polishing and refining that sort of skill into uh, the euthanasia discussion that we've got at the moment as legislation that was released last week i mean they've they've put some absolute restrictions in place. It's not as cut and dried as people think, but it does enable that discussion and potential dignity if people do have uh some terminal illness. Uh, That's been vetted and and clarified. They've had capacity to deal with it um, and make that informed decision before they get to any incapacitation.
0: Well, as you say, it is a very vigorous process. I mean, 68 inbuilt safeguards, three medical opinions before you even get there. I mean, this is a process and obviously there's great rigour around how you go through this process. Was NICHQ right, though, in pushing this in the first instance over this last 20 years? Uh,
1: Look, I must admit, uh, being involved in critical and and tertiary care facilities over the last 20-plus years, I've seen some people suffer through their disease process, whether it be some terminal cancers, uh, ongoing neurological issues um, that have had uh, major complications for their life, and their quality of life immediately deteriorated to a significant point where it was beyond hope of medical practice to assist other than keeping them comfortable. Um, I'm the first to admit that you know having the right to life and that right to choose is very empowering for people and I think even at our worst, I think we have the capacity to share um, with that empathy and empower people to be more accountable and uh, I guess sympathetic to their needs, in, especially in their hour of need. There's some massive sort of philosophic issues that we're discussing here,
0: and it's don't. obviously you know really riven a lot of our parliamentarians as as they've wrestled with this. I mean, the Hippocratic Oath, of course, you know, suggesting that life is
1: a or sacred. I mean, okay. um, we don't want to do harm to anyone, and that's probably the biggest challenge I have. in in this debate and having this conversation with people. But having the right as opposed to the state dictating what can or cannot be prescribed um, makes it very limiting in its its entity for care, which I think ultimately is what all healthcare practitioners want to maintain. I mean, I've used other discussions about what we do with um, our, our pets. And potentially our pets, in this instance, have uh, many advantages over humans in this instance. Clearly, you know, if we see a, a dog with a terminal illness, that a valued family, friend and colleague for a long period of time, we don't want to see them suffer in these instances. And we enable uh, legally, uh, via medical practitioners, the ability to keep them comfortable and uh, to euthanize them at an appropriate time for the family and the pet. Um, again, very debatable in these identities of emotional and morality, but... Um... It's forbidden at the moment, although it's recently been changed, where it's possible now that we can assist patients who have got a terminal illness. Who, you know, some of the limitations are that you have to be you know, be given a, a termination of literally six months of life left, left, left to live. As you said, specialists involved, your GPs involved, and multiple medical practitioners who are specialised in particular um, this legislation to be trained up uh, and actually giving access to the ability to identify um, the pros and the cons. Um, so that you can actually have an informed decision and understand what those risks are and creating a great advanced care plan for you and your family.
0: And then the mechanism of the process of the euthanasia itself. I mean, three pharmacists will mix the cocktail of legal drugs and personally deliver the 100 mil doses to approved terminally
1: ill people, supervised again by the, the, uh, the practicing doctor. Absolutely. Doctors. They're giving instructions. It's in a locked box, just like they do for uh, ammunition. You have to have three series of uh, locked and secured areas. So it's an absolutely different definitive point where people are actively making that decision for themselves um, and they're supported in that by the people that they love and care the most
0: you think there's going to be much pushback on this
1: as, as we as it evolves i mean there's been a lot of discussion already of course Uh, well as again we talked about you know Philip Nischke and he was a a bit more robust in in his uh, analogy and he's trying to reinstigate some of his discussion debates but um, the challenge I think is about that comforting issue and what you would like with your family or yourself even should you reach these despairing measures where you know there is medically and uh, personally no other challenge that can be supported except uh, pain relief a couple of the Europeans of course are already down this track and they've they've been or have had this
0: sort of legislation for number of years now i think i think the swiss and also the the dutch um but here in victoria the health minister estimating there could be anywhere between 12 and
1: 150 victorians will be availing themselves of this new legislation Absolutely. And I think if that's a choice that people want to make, I think the state shouldn't be getting involved in those processes except making it accessible with medical support appropriate, which is what's being instigated here via the Alfred Hospital. Um, For people who need to or want to go through this process, it's important to know you can see it starts with asking your local GP. Not all GPs will be uh, available or willing to do so, Um, and they've got seven days to give you that confirmation of whether they are willing to support you or not um as you can get a second or third opinion in these processes so um um, it starts with your gp it starts with your family having those discussions well as i say this is the age age,
0: of course a program designed for older australians and of course this legislation as we were saying at the outset designed for palliative care but i would suggest that many of us uh, getting into the older phase that third age of our life will obviously have to be thinking about these new assisted dying laws which um got into or were well, legislated of course last week this is the age stage we're speaking to our health reporter damien Flenley, who on occasion drops by and we uh, warmly uh, support him and uh, his endeavors to help us just uh, get across a few of the conundrums that are facing us in the medical and scientific worlds um damien one of the other things that i think that's come across your desk in recent days is
1: this issue of pain and pain management and prescriptive drugs yeah. what are we doing there well, look, it's a chronic disease issue that's been affecting a greater community for an extraordinary period of time. And I think some of the limitations have been um, the public's knowledge about pain relief, how it works and how effective it can be. Um, we can all buy Panadol over the counter. We can get Nurofen over the counter. But every pill, every medication we take does have side effects. Some of those um, can cause long-term damage or long-term issues. Um, The current initiative from the Department of Health is to start empowering people in a more constructive fashion, realising that hospitals are tertiary emergency facilities. They're not meant as your local GP drop-in. They're meant to be this acute facility it does with acute issues but the stats are contradicting that
0: statement or that intent anyway because it looks like more of us are ditching private health and turning up at
1: the local hospital for some assistance indeed and this is the challenge that we face especially with our aging epidemic but the challenge being simply our chronic disease load is increasing exponentially and the hospitals at their best facility they do an amazing job and i really respect them for their challenges um But they struggle under that load and how we empower patients to take more accountability, more responsibility, but also um, helping themselves before they even get to that crisis point is where the challenge comes. So, what are we doing about pain and pain management? Uh, pain management is something that can be best dealt with by speaking with a pain specialist. There are dedicated doctors who uh, absolutely conscript in their way of dealing with uh, with medical science. You know, initiative to help people manage their pain. So, this pain management then
0: and specialists, is this a new initiative? Something that's being encouraged? Does it uh, deviate from?
1: past practice it's actually always been around Um, typically you see gp when you've got some acute issues i've got a sore knee or a sore back the doctor will prescribe a couple of pills to say try this see if that helps you through the acute phase However, some people might uh, not necessarily stretch that injury or uh, go and see the physio or see the allied health professionals that help um, reduce that strain on the back or that lower part of injury, um, and they keep going back for that same pain relief on a regular basis. This is something that we're trying to help reduce, understanding that some of those strong painkillers, as I said, have major side effects, and it's important to realise that there's an underlying cause for the pain and how we can best work around that as opposed to just taking the pills. So these are uh, prescribed drugs of dependency ultimately then this is exactly right you know as i said there's lots of side effects where people can become dependent it can ruin your gut flora and i know that's a topical word for a lot of people um it has a lot of other issues with regards to inflammation um, reflux and other uh, associated illnesses that really can be prevented if those pills can be um, removed due to good rehabilitation Um, good exercise um, and good awareness of your body as to when it's starting to reach those strain periods we all overdo things, we all stress our bodies out on a regular basis but understanding that sleep and hydration and a good diet are most important in part of this larger process of pain management. But if somebody's got a screaming pain in their lower back or something, they're not going to be able to sleep, they're not going to be able to eat anyway. Agreed and this is where we need to have uh, specialist involvement who are dedicated in the pain management regime, identifying that there are are some really strong painkillers that are very effective for short periods of time but if people are becoming dependent or using them on a more regular basis there's an underlying cause that needs to be treated and so part of the initiative is to actually instigate referrals from GP practitioners over to these pain relieving specialists who will use psychological uh, uh, abilities you speak to a psychologist seeing a physio and allied health professionals to help support you in that recovery and understanding of the overlying illness and risks so this is to reduce your dependency then on these chemicals that are intervening to try and offer you pain assistance? And it's to empower you in your knowledge and awareness for your ongoing chronic disease care and issues. If you've got chronic pain, um, you've got, you may have chronic pain. Uh, it may not be relieved by other issues, but if you haven't tried those abilities, uh, we want to reduce your potential risk to other uh, processes and problems. So why this intervention? Where, what's the thrust of this legislation or this initiative? Why? Well, people will be aware that over the, the recent 12, 18 months, we've reduced... Uh, reduced access to codeine over the over the pharmacy counter knowing that clinically codeine's got a very limited effect on chronic disease and acute pain issues uh, it can be quite effective in short doses which is why you need to see a GP for that access now Um, We also identify other issues with morphine-based drugs and uh, some of the other opioid dependencies that do create other depressive, anxiety sort of components. And we all know how much that's affecting a lot of people, regardless whether they've got chronic disease or not.
0: So through medication, I have inadvertent dependence on some of these heavy-duty drugs.
1: Potentially, absolutely. And I think what we really want to do is empower people to have the knowledge, to understand it's not just about going to see your GP for a pill or a script. It's actually getting the appropriate conversation started so that you understand your body, your illnesses, your disease, and how you best manage yourself as best you can to avoid those chronic and tertiary facilities. So
0: that's been the theme of today's discussion, Damien. It's basically empowering ourselves to have discussions about our treatment of uh, chronic illness terminal chronic illness and also how we'd go about our daily lives when it comes to sort of chronic
1: pain and management of it. Absolutely look it's terribly uh, overwhelming in the first instance when people suffer chronic diseases to start unraveling those uh, onion skins of issues that have occurred for a chronic period of time but if you start one step at a time it can be it may become quite productive for you your pills your family and ultimately yourself. Damien, just very quickly before we let you go, I know you've been banging on about it and you've
0: joined us before on the age stage, this flu vaccine. Is it too late still to get this
1: thing now? No, it's definitely not. Definitely not. It's definitely worthwhile getting, especially if you're in a higher age group or you've got other chronic disease issues of blood pressure, diabetes, um, or a little bit overweight or kidney troubles. It's definitely worthwhile still getting today. Uh, for you, go and see your GP and get access to it. They do have it at some chemists where you can just book in, Uh I think it's around 10, 10 to $20 to get that injection. Uh, for over 60 or uh, in a seniors card, you pretty much get a discount on it as well. So uh, it's worthwhile doing to prevent you from getting that cold or flu that potentially locks you up in hospital for a good four to five weeks potentially gives you um, long-term issues. Or kills you. It can indeed. Damien Flinley, always good
0: to get your insights, and we appreciate your time. Thanks for dropping by the HH Studios.
1: Thanks for having us at the Bendigo Studio.
0: Damien Flinley joins us on an irregular basis here in the age stage, although I must say we're seeing him more and more often these days because there's just such a lot happening in the particular field that Damien is a specialist in. Damien Flinley, thank you. This is the age stage. We will take a break. We thank our sponsors, Aftercare, Australasia, and also Australian Unity. When we come back, age stage continues. To introduce our next guest into the age stage uh, from Aftercare Australasia, It's always good to welcome Warren Haynes into the studio. Warren, welcome. G'day, Brendan. Um, As we were hearing, Warren, earlier on with Damien, euthanasia bill was passed through the Victorian Parliament last week. Uh, Obviously, the dust's still settling. There's a lot of pushback in certain quarters. But before we get into discussing the area of the aged care quality standards, which have just been published and you want to talk to today, I just yeah. wonder whether I can just tap you very quickly. You come from a nursing background... And I was just i was just curious about your view on this matter. Uh, as a previous nurse or with a nursing
2: background, what's your feeling on the euthanasia bill? Yeah, sure. I am still currently a nurse, uh, I should well, say. Well, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, I guess I've, I've had a little bit of experience with um, people. It's something that does come up in the aged care um, sector generally. And I've also got a little bit of personal experience as well. Um, with some family members who who have certainly been watching this, um, this bill with interest and this development. Um, one of the things that I see about it is that... So there's probably two broad observations. One is I think that it's been very, very carefully crafted in a way that takes a very conservative approach to the sort of decision making. So there's lots of checks and balances in there. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is that I, I do occasionally field questions from people who are perhaps drawing on some of the overseas experience, say such as, for instance, the Netherlands often gets mentioned where um, this sort of legislation and approach has been in place for a long time. And there's, there's almost a sense there that it's becoming a little bit too much of an expectation and a bit too casual, if you like. Whereas the Victor- I need to emphasise my impression of the Victorian legislation is it's the exact opposite of that. It's a very rigorous process and it's very cautious in terms of... So there are lots of exclusions where they say, hey, you, you know, this bill, this option doesn't apply to you, for instance. So that's, I think that's a good thing. But the, the flip side of that is that for instance um with what i often see is that and this is a i suppose a comment about men's health <laughs> in it in general is that a lot of blokes out there will pretty much do that that blokey attitude towards their own health where they just take a she'll be right attitude and uh, you know oh, i've got a bit of a nagging pain there but oh it'll go away and you know i'll walk it off and uh, <laughs> drink a cup of concrete and harden up sort of approach and uh, and that's certainly, I think, something that's a very common attitude, perhaps more so, even more so with our current older generation, because that's, you know, they come through the war years and, and afterwards, where that, that very much was how you were expected to, to deal with uh, adversities in life. But, It doesn't work that well if you think that you would potentially not want to end up on life support in a hospital later on down the track. Because what tends to happen is you ignore things, you get a very late stage diagnosis of whatever the ailment is that you have, which often means you have a relatively short period of time left. Where it would be nearly impossible to meet all of the you checks and balances in the euthanasia legislation as it now stands. Well, you're
0: right. Apparently, that apparently there's 68 guidelines that you've got to satisfy, and three doctors as well. Your <laughs> yes. treating physician yes.
2: plus two others. It's not something you can do quickly, Brendan. And so, really, the ideal circumstance would be that that um, people in general who need to think about this ahead of time as to whether that's that's the circumstances they would choose because uh, it very much is a it's it's a lifestyle choice really um and 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 essentially just to have regular medical checkups so that you pick up any potentially terminal illnesses um well before they get to that stage.
0: So basically everybody has to get with this legislation because as a person such as myself entering the third age, I need my family to be very comfortable with a discussion that I might want to have with my physician later on in life if I've got some sort of terminal prognosis
2: or diagnosis. That's definitely another complicating factor and... and I guess the main thing is it's not something you can just make a snap decision on. You know, it, it's the fact that the legislation's there does not mean that it will work on the basis of you going to the doctors, getting a terrible diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis, and then just going, oh, well, in that case, bang, you know, snap my fingers. That's what I've decided I'm going to do. Uh, I, I don't want to sort of um, live beyond a certain stage. And then, as you say, jump through 68 separate hoops. And then, then in addition to that, it's also making sure that your partner, your extended and immediate family are all on board with your decision um, because otherwise it just becomes very, very drawn out. And you, you, you may get to a point where you're hospitalised with all the, the, the tubes inserted and you know everyone uh, ready to, on standby to resuscitate you at a moment's notice before you even get through the process. Interesting. Well, you and Damien both are, are very much uh, advocating that uh,
0: men in particular get <laughs> on the health kick <laughs> and certainly have some serious discussions with their physicians and get down and get these regular health checks. Both of you seem to be pushing that theme very heavily.
2: Well, it, it, it's a well-established fact that, that men are notorious for it. I mean, another classic example, Brendan, of health, basic health checks that people routinely ignore is this uh, incredibly low uptake on the um, prostrate um, um, testing kits that we all get sent as a as a as a happy fiftieth birthday <laughs> present from the Australian government and the I can't quite the figures off the top of my head but I know that the rate in which the those tests get carried out and completed and returned is incredibly low. You're joking. Incredibly low. They're basically
0: giving away an insight into your long term future health. I, I I do it regularly and yep. make sure that I get those things signed, sealed and delivered.
2: Yep. yep. It's not a topic people really like talking about or thinking about. It's got a bit of a high sort of icky factor.
0: But hell, what it prevents in the longer term, because if you come down with a a serious bowel cancer or something that can Mm. be detected
2: early, Mm. there's intervention is very possible. Yeah, my apologies. I think I said prostate cancer. It is bowel cancer, but you're quite right. But but again, it's it's a a very common, uh, highly treatable, Um, first world illness and uh, and we're all largely just sort of sleepwalking right right through it and that's the sort of example of an illness that later on will get quite advanced by the time it's actually causing you symptoms that are causing discomfort or pain and and you'll go to the doctors and the doctor will say oh look I'm sorry mate but it's you know your options are really poor now um and uh You're stuck with it then; it's too late. Whereas if you if you'd looked at it five years or even ten years earlier, or done the or done the test, yeah, you might have picked up some very early indicator that needs really minimal treatment, and you know, you're going to live well a lot longer than you perhaps originally thought you were going to live.
0: You tuned up to PFM, and we're in the midst of a discussion with Warren Haynes on every other week. Warren drops by from Aftercare Australasia just to have a bit of a natter to us about issues in the area and uh, topics that have come across his desk and we thank Warren very much for his time. So let's uh, get back on track then. I just (laughs) wanted to tap you, uh, given your your basic uh, medical and nursing background. So aged care quality standards have now been published. You seen the first
2: documents, what's your reaction and where are we going with this? So just to go back a step, um, I think we, we previously talked about how there, there used to be a document that was a charter of rights and responsibilities um, that was very much about um, really just sort of saying that the approved provider had some fairly minimal rudimentary obligations and that equally the the clients or care recipients as the government refers to them uh, had had a, an equal sort of set of uh, obligations and that the standards themselves that, that the um, quality of care was being assessed against, very much were just sort of a, a ticker box approach of, you know, well, you need to provide this and you need to provide that. And it really talked about the way in which you needed to provide it or the quality to which it needed to be provided. So so uh, as part of this review, which has sort of been running parallel to the Royal Commission, um, they've, they have released a, a draft of the... Uh, uh, the uh, the new aged care quality standards. So
0: this was the Ken White initiative before the Royal Commission was announced. Uh, he announced this, didn't uh, he? Uh, just just prior yes, to yes. Yep. And this was going to basically be the harbinger of a big change, and basically get everybody onto a yes. level playing platform, and take some of the issues out of the whole area. Correct. But it got so bad that the royal commission was eventually requested Correct. and asked for. Yep. So where do we get to, and where are so, we up to with this? So
2: these, first of all, I should say these are going to be what applies from the first of July. They go hand in hand with the new aged care quality standards um, commission, and. The good thing is that they're very much more in alignment uh, with what's the approach that's been used in the disability sector for quite some time, where it's really clearly articulating that people have a right to certain expectations, such as, for example, to belong and be safe and comfortable in the organisation's environment. Whereas previously, you could be in a nursing home and there was there was no expect bizarrely there was no expectation that you would feel safe or comfortable there. Um, there was just you know oh well you have to be provided with a bed and you have to be provided with you know so many square metres of, of room and uh, um, you know you have to get a meal. Um, Indeed, but what. Reason-
0: course does this new quality standards ensure that I have if I am unhappy with my situation or environment?
2: Okay. So just I'm just sort of flicking through sure. it now. So there's actually another standard very specifically that talks about feedback and complaints. So the consumer outcome that they're looking for there is I feel safe and am encouraged and supported to give feedback and make complaints. I am engaged in processes to address my feedback and complaints and appropriate action is taken. And then that's broken down into specific requirements. So any approved aged care provider as an organisation needs to demonstrate that consumers, so clients, their family, friends, carers and others are encouraged and supported to provide feedback and make complaints. Uh, clients or consumers are made aware of and have access to advocates, language services, and other methods for raising and resolving complaints. Uh, appropriate action is taken in response to complaints, and open disclosure process is used when things go wrong so again, in the royal commission we've heard lots of um, lots of examples of sort of a level of secrecy about uh, about the complaints process um, families regularly saying that they feel as though no one was listening to their complaints they couldn't they weren't clear about what action was being taken they were sort of pretty much you know put on the pause button was pushed and they were just put on hold. This is really clearly saying if organizations try and do that they will be in breach of the standards and they could therefore what follows from that is they could therefore actively be sanctioned by the, uh, the, the the regulating body as such.
0: And have we seen or do we have any insight into those sanctions at this stage? What could it be? Monetary? What licence? Well,
2: there already are sanctions um, included in the Act. Um, so that's sort of already built into the structure. I would imagine that this will simply be um, applied directly across to those existing sanctions. But previously they often couldn't be applied because you were only being assessed on sort of Various, as I said, quite sort of basic technical aspects of the care, rather than what's the client's actual experience of it, and, and when they make a complaint, uh, how effectively are you dealing with it? You, you weren't being, providers weren't being assessed on that. Whereas, so this, this you know, is a, this,
0: this is a major empowerment then for the client that is receiving these services. So Ken White was you know he's been pretty uh, pretty adversarial in terms of being able to advance his ideas.
2: Oh look, it definitely. As I said, it's very much coming from a rights approach rather than a just do this, do that approach. And and the the rights approach means that that um, there is going to be a much more nuanced assessment. That's going to be much more on a case by case basis and based on those sort of broader principles of natural justice that are incorporated into our our legal system. Um, and that's how that's what I think it's going to bring to it. So it's, it's going to mean that each complaint should be being assessed and addressed on its own individual merits rather than just a one-size-fits-all approach.
0: Your specialisation is home care. What implications for you as a provider of that?
2: Well, look, I'd like to say for us as an organisation, it's probably not that big an impact because we largely work by this, this sort of approach anyway, and that comes I guess partly from a from an organisational cultural perspective. Um, in that, as I, as I mentioned previously, you know it's a it's a small family owned business. The the drivers for the uh, the actual directors of the company are very much about providing good quality care to people and doing it in a meaningful way. So we've already got that in our culture. But then the other advantage we have is um, a good chunk of work that we do is in the NDIS disability funded space, and they've already been on board with the for a very long time so we've already had to align so so we wanted to align our approach with this sort of rights based standards anyway but but we've also had to align it um, in any event uh, and it's meant that we've had a bit of practice I suppose at how to do this whereas I think for perhaps in particular for nursing homes where the through no fault of theirs the the regulations as I said, have very largely focused on not the outcomes for clients but just sort of the mechanics of, you know, like a shopping, like a laundry list, I'd say, of, you know, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. And you can, as long as you can demonstrate you're doing that, even if you're doing it poorly, um, you're still meeting their requirements. And I, I think that's what underpins a lot of the complaints and dissatisfaction that family and, and clients have and and employees have had with the system, where they may well all be advocating for change and improvement, but the the people that are you know funding and operating these services have just been able to look very very closely at the regulations and say, well, technically we're still meeting the regulations. So there's the cop out. Uh, yeah. But basically, not not all practitioners uh, provide
0: your good practice standards. Um, are some of the providers going to be
2: feeling a little bit of fear now? I think that the ones that I see that probably are going to feel a pinch are some of the ones that, that perhaps have come a little bit more recently into This area, I mean...
0: when we've identified them in the past as well, haven't we? Yeah. Just looking at a bottom line, looking at a a profit. uh, And, And
2: you know, the quick sort of make-a-buck ones um, that just want to sort of skim over the top, I I think for them there's real implications um, because when they get put to the test, I suspect they'll be found wanting... Um, but you know look uh, that'll be time will tell i 'm sure we'll'll we 'll we'll start to see things flowing through in the in the new financial year and um, and uh, from our perspective, we think it 'll be good because uh, one of the frustrations I think not just for ourselves but for other good providers out there, and there are quite a lot of good providers out there. Is this uh, sense that these cowboys can come in and um, and just sort of do whatever they want, and um, they're just assuming they can get away with it? So we, yeah, I think I've mentioned before. You know, we've we've dealt with a couple of clients who've. Uh, Supposedly, get services from a uh, an organisation that's based interstate, and they've they've literally almost never seen anybody from that organisation um, turn up in person to even see what support needs they have. It's all done over the phone, and they they they. Uh a broker, they purchase workers from other companies, um, so there's not even a direct uh, reporting requirement, and uh, you know I, I, I think I can't recall whether I've mentioned this or not, but I, I you know I turned up and they they basically bought a piece of equipment that needed to be installed, and it had been sitting in the box for six months because they just assumed that the client was going to organise for it to get installed. Um, And and that's just, you know, that's just shonky
0: service. It is shonky service. The good news is that Aftercare Australasia provide a very exemplary family-based service. And if you're in the area and you're interested, you should give them a call. Uh, The other interesting thing I think that we can, the headline probably that we can withdraw from all this uh, one would be that uh, it seems that standards are now being improved. And the expectation as far as client services are concerned is an improvement. As you say, time will tell and we'll just have to see how all this thing shakes down but at the moment it looks like things are beginning to turn in in favor of of the client
2: brendan in my opinion what it's doing is it's setting the scene for that to happen it still remains to to unfold around whether clients are going to understand this and start taking advantage of these opportunities and also how uh, properly these complaints are going to be investigated and Um, you know, addressed. I think that's the stuff that's still in the sort of wait and see category. But certainly it's it's put a whole new sort of footing, you know, a whole new floor underneath the, the aged care service system. And um, I think it's very positive. Sounds good. Sounds like it was needed
0: as well. The Royal Commission, of course, uncovering a whole lot of stuff there as well. And add that to this aged care quality standards initiative, then who knows where we're going to be. Probably in a much better place in months to come. This is The Aged Age Stage, uh, brought to you every week by Aftercare Australasia and our friends at Australian Unity. Warren Hayes, thank you very much indeed. We will see you in a couple of
2: weeks. I look forward to it, Brandon.
0: We take a break and we'll be back with more Aged Age Stage right after this. This Thursday morning, you tuned up to The Age Stage here on RPPFM. It is great to have your company. And now time on The Age Stage for us to introduce you to our new Age Stage producer and reporter, Cheryl Brody. Cheryl, great that you could join us. Welcome to The Age Stage, and it's good to meet you. My pleasure. Um, Thank you for having me. Well, it's fantastic that you are. You're volunteering your services around here as you complete a media course at Griffith University. What are you doing and why?
3: Um, I'm doing a Bachelor of Communications um, in specialising in journalism with University Online. Uh, it's a Sydney-based uh, university and it means that I can, I can still look after my family responsibilities and school drop-off um, and all those extra um, curricular activities uh, for my young son. And also complete a uh, higher education uh, qualification in the area of communications.
0: Well, it's fantastic and we're delighted that you're here and also doubly delighted because you've got a health background as well, which means that you're pretty enthusiastic about the age stage and giving us a little bit of a hand here as our producer going forward, hey?
3: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Good. Um, so in health, uh, you had a few years in that industry?
3: Yeah, that's, that's right, Brendan. I, I was working in PR in public relations um, between providers and GPs. So, educating, facilitating, and introducing innovation in healthcare.
0: Sounds fantastic. Well, we need all that and more here at RPPFM, Cheryl, sure, so I'm sure you're going to do a fantastic job for us. So Thank, thank you very you. much indeed. Now, we've got you off to a flying start. In fact, you've already got a, a, an item for us. Who have you been talking to?
3: Um, so I've um, tapped into uh, Professor Alvni Sally at the National Integrative Medicine, Institute of Integrative Medicine. He's the director there and he is also the founder. Founder of of this integrative um, service based in Hawthorne. Firstly, I asked Professor sali about when it's time to review medication.
4: Yes, uh, Cheryl. Look, uh, thank you very much also for inviting me to uh, uh, speak on your uh, program, and um, uh, the the uh, uh, topic of. Uh, Medications is uh, really very important, mm-hmm. in particular amongst the elderly, uh, because not only can they be on a medication, but they can be on multiple medications. Right. Uh, the first and the most important thing about any medication is, does the patient really need to be on a medication? Okay. And can there be an alternative? Mm-hmm. And in particular, if they're on multiple medications, there's the concern about interactions between the medications. Absolutely. Now, no matter what the illness that the person may have, uh, the first thing that must be a key feature of caring for the patient is to make the patient as healthy as possible. Yes. Now, everyone, almost everyone can be made more healthier. So it is really very important that the uh, uh, because every illness has got a reason, and we mainly understand these reasons now. So, if someone, for example, has got elevated blood pressure, the the condition is called hypertension. Now, this this condition has got a very good name. You could virtually call most illnesses. Hypertension because virtually every illness has got high tension or stress as an important factor. And if your blood pressure is elevated, it shouldn't not be just about giving a medication to lower blood pressure because it's more complicated than that. Uh, the the bl- blood pressure elevation is of course associated with tension. Okay. So it's critically important to mm-hmm. do something about the tension. Right. Uh, it's critically important to improve the person's diet. We know that a healthy diet can help improve blood pressure. Okay. We know that exercise helps to improve blood pressure. And we know that weight loss can help improve blood pressure. So it's important to look at the reasons why the person is having a medication and is it really necessary? Right. And can we, in the long term, work towards the person not being on the the medication by improving those factors, those lifestyle factors that I was talking about?
3: Yes. Okay, so that's really interesting. So what you're saying... Um, In effect, is the medications only one part of um, a healthy um, person?
4: Yes. yes. And the example I gave of hypertension is is classical because in many instances, unfortunately, uh, hypertension is considered as a condition where there's elevated blood pressure. Right. Without any thought as to the other factors that are involved in why the blood pressure goes up. And just the name in itself tells us that hypertension actually means too much tension.
3: Yes, it does. Mm.
4: That's really very important.
3: Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, that's that's really helpful um, for a lot of our listeners, I think. Related to that also is managing stress. So stress is important, we understand, and it can be really positive for the body um, yes. if it's also um, managed. Um,
4: yes. Well, look, the, the stress factor is really very important. Uh, stress is, is often linked with uh, uh, other aspects like isolation, loneliness, uh, and can be also uh, exist with depression mm-hmm. stress and depression can often be uh, coexistent and uh, a key f- factor to do with stress is the isolation factor and not having other people to share your problems with right and uh, if if in fact, you're unable to unload your problems and issues with a close friend or a relative, then that makes it difficult. And it's becoming really very clear that the isolation factor Mm -hmm. is very prevalent, especially in the British culture countries, which is Britain, Australia and the US. But the problem is almost certainly greater in the us and australia where we live in car cities 90 percent of australians live in a big monstrous car city and a car city is a place that can uh, can be big and also uh your friends and relatives can live quite a, a major distance i mean if if you live in craigieburn and you've got a your close friend who lives in mornington well the chances of actually getting together are really very difficult and a Harvard University study about 10 years ago showed that you got the best support from your friend and your relative when they live within a mile. The magic about the mile, of course, is that it's walking distance. Right. And if you live walking distance from your close friend or relative, then you're more likely to see them. So this this is really very critical. But in fact, if you look at Rome and Paris, people tend to live close to their friends and relatives rather than being close to their work. They'd rather travel to their work but be close to their friends and relatives. Okay. So mm-hmm. the, the British Prime Minister, uh, Theresa May, whom I've been very impressed with, In March of last year, she appointed the world's first minister for loneliness. And we certainly need to be looking at this uh, in Australia and also the U.S. It's interesting that in the U.S., it's, I think, the first country of the developed countries that for three years in a row now has had a decrease in life expectancy. And a key factor to do with whether people develop illnesses. And longevity is stress and if you've got too much of it and not enough backup or support to deal with it uh, it is a major problem.
3: Okay that's wonderful I appreciate the examples that you've given I think that um, that um, um, is really really useful for a lot of our listeners and um, Uh, We appreciate um, your time today, uh, Professor Sali, and I hope that um, we're able to speak with Professor Sali on a regular basis um, to uh, to discuss other topics related to the health and and lifestyle of um, older Australians living on the Mornington Peninsula. So, thank you again for your for your time today.
4: Absolute pleasure. Okay.
3: Okay. Speak soon. And
4: with your. um uh, the, the, your uh, uh, work in the uh, radio environment.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you. Take bye. care. Okay, bye.
0: Professor Avni Sali, there speaking to our new producer of The Age Stage, uh, Cheryl Brady. Cheryl, thank you very much indeed for that.
3: My pleasure.
0: And uh, a big show in prospect next week as well. I believe you're already working on a couple of segments and a couple of items as well, something that we can look forward to next week, hey? That's right. So I'm sure that uh, we'll be hearing a lot more about that as we go forward. Um, So just quickly before I go, an update for everyone as well on the Mornington Peninsula in particular, because the shire down here is calling for community feedback on development of a new positive ageing strategy just to ensure that people on the peninsula are supported to age well and promote optimal health and well-being. The peninsula has the second highest uh, older population in Victoria with over 30% of all residents over the age of 60 compared to the Melbourne metropolitan average of just 17%. So this number is expected to increase by more than 33% as well by 2030. So these figures highlight why Council down here is bringing positive ageing to the fore and they want your input into that so the Shire wants to know what's working in our local areas, what needs to be improved. All information ideas gathered from the feedback will help shape the positive aging strategy and the shire is holding a number of community forums across the peninsula and will also gather feedback online and via post submissions now open they close at 5 p.m on the 26th of uh, july this year so if you do want to get involved get along to the Shire website for more information and that is just about it from me. Uh, firstly, can I thank our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Thank our special guest this week as well, Damien Flenley our medical reporter, Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia, Professor Anvi Sally who was the guest of our new reporter and host of the Age, state Cheryl Brody who will, as I said, be joining you next week as I, Brendan Telfer, take some time off. Until I speak with you again, all the very best, Cheryl. Good luck with the show.
3: Thank you so much.
0: I'm sure you're going to have a whole lot of fun talking to the crew out there in the age stage. Absolutely. Enjoy, and I'll see you at the end of July. Until then, everyone, stay safe.